You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Onyx Hunt and Onyx Maps. Now, I got to have a a little heart-to-heart with you here real quick. I used Onyx Maps on my phone every single day during the hunting season, whether I was out west during my elk hunt, South Dakota mule deer hunt, or my rut vacation in Iowa, I was on my phone using Onyx Maps every part of the day, whether I was looking at terrain features uh, on the topographic and, and satellite maps that they offer on their uh, uh, on their app, or if I was leaving a waypoint like a watering hole or where I left my trail cameras or tree stands, or if I was marking a route from a campsite to a glassing position or from my truck to a tree stand location. I used Onyx Maps every single day, and I feel like it's an app that made my life a little bit easier. I don't know about you, but uh, there's been times in the past where I have been trying to find a tree stand based off of memory and not off of looking at a map and uh, I I have gotten lost in the dark before I had to wait till sun up and then and then you know find it that way but that problem does not exist anymore because of Onyx and uh, there's a ton of other features that I think you guys need to check out go to onyxmaps.com and uh, check out uh, all the functionality of the app Uh, download it to your phone give it a try and when you do decide to purchase enter the discount code nation 20 n-a-t-i-o-n two zero and for new users you're going to receive 20% off. So onyxmaps.com. Happy Monday, everybody, and welcome back to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. Today, we have a very interesting episode. We're going to be talking with a bow hunter who's been doing it for 25 years. And I find that very interesting because a lot of the people that we have on this podcast have been doing it around that uh, that 10 to 15 year, maybe even uh, earlier than that, right? Uh, and I always like hearing the insight from a wide range of individuals and today we're going to be talking with Dana Coldren of Illinois and he's been a bow hunter for 25 years and we're going to talk about his 2019 season but we start the podcast off talking about his tenure as a bow hunter we talk about you know 
the differences in the gear that he's used, the differences in the strategy throughout his years as a bow hunter, um, being aggressive to being patient, knowing when to be aggressive versus being patient, and just kind of walk through his experience as a bow hunter. And like I mentioned, I really like getting all types of people, the newer guy and the guy who's been at it for 25 years. And I think we can learn something. We can learn a little bit from everybody we have on the podcast, especially someone who's been doing it for 25 years. And just listen to how he talks about bow hunting and its uh, its impact it's had on his life and uh, how he approaches every season today versus how he did it uh, you know 25 years ago as a younger man really awesome episode I, I can't wait for you guys to hear it because um, I always think that my birth as a bow hunter officially started in 2006 and that is um, that's been 13 years now 13 going on 14 years I've been doing it since I was about 14 but not serious right I think that my rebirth into hunting was 2006 and I still have a lot to learn I still have a lot of um, uh, not, not only to learn but just to learn how to approach failure learn from other people and I think that might even be one of the reasons why I love this podcast is because I get to talk to so many people, learn about their failures, learn about their passions, and you know that then becomes part of me. Uh, so that's just a weird way of saying I really enjoyed this conversation today. But before we get into this episode, I got to talk to you a little bit about ripcord arrow rest, man. I've had a, a ripcord on my bow for about 13 years now, an absolutely lock-tight, solid uh, rest um, I beat the shit out of my equipment every single year, uh, and a ripcord f- functions the same way, like it's designed every single time. Mud, water, uh, dirt, ice, you name it, this, this, this rest performs at a very high level. It's an American-made company. It's a veteran-owned company, and I'm telling you right now, uh, you call them up with a problem, they will solve it over the phone with you. Um, they are a... A, what I call the standard in in rest in the industry. So if you want to find out more information about Ripcord and all of the the cable and limb driven rests that they offer, go to ripcordarrowrest.com and uh, check them out. So we've done the intro, we've done the commercial. Let's get into today's episode with Dana Cauldron. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me right now, Mr. Dana Coldren. What's up, man? Hey, Dan. Great to talk with you. I'm doing great. Yeah, I really appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day to hop on the podcast. Uh, how's everything going this morning? Yeah, pretty good because I'm talking to you on the Nine Finger Chronicles. That's, <laughs> that's a big step for me. Uh, How are you doing? How was your holiday? Uh, holiday was great, but I'll, I'm going to be uh, I'll be honest with you. This morning I woke up to a bit of a surprise. Uh, typically in our house, it's when we wake up, make coffee, you know, feed the kids the quickest thing possible, uh, you know, and uh, this morning, I don't know, maybe I should play the lottery, but I feel like I hit the jackpot. My wife made a coffee cake. You know what a coffee cake is? Ooh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, so I'm I'm feeling I just had a piece of coffee cake before I came on the air with you. And uh, I am I'm feeling happy today. Hashtag blessed. Yeah, I, I understand that for sure. That's a good day. Yeah, absolutely. So um, let's talk. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, this year that you had. Looks like you shot two really good bucks out of Illinois this year. And uh, we're going to get into that. But before we do, as always, I want to talk to you a little bit about where in Illinois do you live and what do you do for a living? Uh, yeah, so I live in central Illinois. Uh, it's mostly agricultural, but there's a few um, bigger companies. Uh, Caterpillar has a big, strong presence here, and that's where I work. And I'm an, I'm an engineer at Caterpillar. I've been working on diesel engines and diesel fuel systems and a bit in natural gas engines along the way. And that's what um, keeps me here in central Illinois, that and my wife Sue, her family, uh, a big farm family in central Illinois, so that, that keeps us tied close to home as well. Nice. So what division of Caterpillar do you engineer for, like uh, bulldozers, backhoes? Yeah, we're, we're called Large Power Systems Division, and we work work on the, uh, the diesel and natural gas engines for our equipment, for the, for the Track type tracker tractors, the wheel loaders, large mining trucks, uh, that that type of equipment. Yeah, those large mining trucks are impressive to see up close. You know, you see them on TV. Um, I, every once in a while, I'll watch this show called Gold uh, Gold Rush, where it's those guys up in Alaska, yeah. and you know, sometimes they have those big uh, those big big dump trucks. And then I got up close to one uh, one day, and <laughs> they're like. 20 foot high wheels it's ridiculous how big some of these uh some of these uh, pieces of equipment are yeah they're they're mind-blowing they're huge 400 and some ton metric ton capacity yeah you can put a locomotive in the back of them man amazing that's crazy so when you 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 design the engine part of it now is when I think of an engine, I think of a truck engine, right? Or, you know, I, I do have some, you know, I, I was raised on a farm, so I see a, a tractor engine. But I, I have a feeling we're talking on a much bigger scale here. Yeah, that's true. I, I worked on, on highway truck engines. Caterpillar used to be in that business uh, a number of years ago. That's, that's kind of where I started. And since then, though, I've moved up into the larger engines, which um, – Probably that large mine truck that you were talking about, the biggest one we have, the 797, it has a, a C175 20-cylinder engine in it, and it's pulling, I think, a little over 4,000 horsepower to run that truck. Wow. So, yeah, they're pretty big engines. Wow. And that's diesel, you said, right? Yep, diesel. And then we have some uh, smaller trucks uh, lately. This has been kind of one, one of the more interesting things I've gotten to work work on have been the, the trucks that we call dual fuel they run on diesel and natural gas, and they can switch back and forth. They can be a, up to 80% natural gas and diesel mix, or they can be running 100% diesel. And our customers like natural gas because it's a fairly cost-effective fuel. It's cheaper than, than diesel, so they want to run their trucks on it and, and to save money by using natural gas. But they also want the flex, flexibility of going back to 100% diesel if they need to because diesel is a little easier to get. And at times there there could be some logistics issues with getting the natural gas because they got to they got to haul it, store it, and put it into a cryogenic vessel in the truck in a liquefied form. So it's a little little more involved to use natural gas 
in these engines because of the complexities associated yeah. with uh, liquefied natural gas. It has to be kept really cold, like minus 160 Celsius. Oh, wow. So there's a refrigeration system that has to be uh, on this engine as well. Yeah, on, the, on these trucks. These on the mine trucks. trucks have been the first adopters of, of natural gas, liquefied natural gas, and they have essentially they're just giant thermos bottles full of liquefied natural gas on these trucks. Man. So it's pretty cool technology. Yeah, absolutely. So you're not just a truck driver anymore. Uh, I take it the guys who operate yeah. these uh, pieces of equipment have to be trained thoroughly on how to uh, work on them and how to change the gas valve or the gas uh, cylinders out and all that stuff. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, there's quite a bit involved. These guys are sharp, sharp guys that run these trucks. Not not just the skill of operating these giant pieces of equipment, but also the understanding the machine and um, as they need to do maintenance and, and things, as well as the if they're involved with natural gas, the safety ramifications of that, because it's, it's a little more... Um, I won't say dangerous, but a little more, you got to be a little more careful with natural gas because it can burn you. Yeah. It's hard to think of something super cold burning you, but it can. So they have to have extra safety equipment and take extra precautions when they're filling the trucks up and things like that. Yeah. My, uh, my uncle, he was a diesel mechanic for a company out of uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and he, uh, he worked on bulldozers and backhoes. I think he was just a straight-up diesel mechanic. He didn't. This was years ago since he's retired, but he didn't have to work on any of the new technology. But he was out in the field every day. You know, a, a, a track would break, or a you know something would break on the, either the engine or the uh, uh, you know or or the the piece of machinery itself, and he would have to go out into the field and fix it for for them. So that was. Uh, uh, that's a pretty interesting job, man. I, t- I take it that uh, you get to see Caterpillar's a, a huge company. I take it that you guys are always trying to find something new, exciting to work on throughout uh, throughout a year. Oh, certainly. Yeah, there's quite a bit of research and development going on. That's primarily where I work. That area of R and D and new technology and new product introduction. So yeah, it's pretty exciting some pretty neat stuff. Once in a while, I get to go into the field and, and go visit some customer sites. I've recently been to a, a site in northern Bra- northern Brazil, the north side of the Amazon basin, a remote power generation station there. That was very interesting. And I've also been up to a, a diamond mine near the Arctic Circle. Oh, wow. And, so that, that, was, that was really cool up there. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, sounds like you got your uh, – your, uh, your hands full at work most of the time, but it sounds like you also do get to uh, get out and uh, enjoy Mother Nature with a bow. It says here that oh, yeah. you've you've been bow hunting for 25 years. Do you remember your first bow season? Oh, I absolutely do. And in fact, I'm a, an adult onset bow hunter. Um, a good friend of mine, Ken Utley, that I worked with. Back in the day, we both started at CAD about the same time. He had been bow hunting since he was um, probably in junior high. He, he's and he's hardcore, really, really an excellent big game hunter, and he, he got me started. And um, I like to tell the story that I, I have a couple of things in common with Fred Bear, and that we're both kind of tall and lanky. And and then second, we both shot our first white-tailed buck or white-tailed deer, I should say, at the age of 33. Oh wow! Now, of course, he had killed. He had killed quite a few other critters leading up to that, but um, 
he he also didn't harvest his first whitetail until he was he was 33, and so was I. So. Wow, that's a that's cool a, that's a cool piece of information. You would have thought that that guy would have had a whitetail under his belt by then. Yeah, yeah, that's what I thought. And of course, that's where the similarities end. He was he was uh, quite a hunter. <laughs> yeah, right, right. So let's talk about uh, the last twenty five years as a bow hunter. Um, you know, some people they try something different and they don't like it, or they find out that bow hunting can be a bit time consuming. Uh, what what has kept you bow hunting for the last 25 years? Yeah, I'd have to say that was the understatement of the day right there. That it can be a bit time-consuming. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, it is at times all-consuming. Right. And, and yeah, and, and so I, I'm very passionate about it, and I think it's the chase that, that I'm, I'm most enthralled with. I just, I just really love getting out there in the woods. I love the planning aspect of it, uh, getting the stands ready, trying to anticipate where the bucks are going to be moving, just studying these animals. And I just, I just love that aspect of it. Now I've always liked the outdoors ever since I was a little kid and first got out and uh, wandered around the woods and swamps and things. So I, I enjoy the outdoors. That's a, that's a big draw. And then the, the chess game is, is the other big draw. I can't say that I'm a killer. Like I, I don't really enjoy the, the killing part of it. I always feel a bit somber about the whole thing. And yeah, and, and a bit sad, but um, I certainly enjoy eating whitetails, and uh, they're they're wonderful to eat, and I love chasing them. So that that's the big draw for me is just being out there and trying to figure them out and, and get the drop on them. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk a little bit about how you have changed over the last twenty five years. Is, is there is there a different Dana uh, bow season number one compared to bow season number twenty five? Oh, absolutely. Uh, patience, I would have to say, is right. the number one thing that's changed. When I, when I first started, it, it um, this probably won't surprise anyone, but bow hunting can be very frustrating, <laughs> <laughs> very challenging and frustrating. And and I would just I would just lose my cool so often. As things would happen. I, I can remember one time I was working chasing this one buck really hard and. I decided to climb down three minutes before I normally do, and I'll be darned that guy didn't walk right up on me because <laughs> I'm standing at the bottom of my stand. I've been there. I was I was spitting mad that day, and you know if that happened to me now, I'll just laugh it off because it's that kind of stuff happens so often. I've I've just learned you got to be patient, and uh, Mother Nature is patient, and you you got to wait her out, and you just have to work with her and and just hang in there. Yeah. So. In your in your last twenty five years as a bow hunter, um, was there a time that you were just like, oh man, well, I'm getting I'm getting not necessarily sick or bored of it, but there was a season that maybe you just kind of played off, or have you been gun ho every single year for twenty five years? Ah, uh, boy, <clears throat> I'll say mostly gun ho. The the down. You know, it's a roller coaster, right? And right. The, the down parts have been um, wounding an animal and not finding them. That that is extremely discouraging to me, and uh, that's part of my story today. And that, at times, that makes me think, "Geez, I, this ain't worth it," because I I take it pretty hard. And one of the things that's kept me going is my daughter is also a, a bow hunter, and uh, that that has helped me stay focused and kept me 
on center because I want her to enjoy it and be good at it and learn from my lessons. And, you know, the times that I thought to myself, oh, man, this ain't worth it. I think, you know, it is worth it. And you enjoy being out there and you, you see your daughter enjoying being, being out there with you and, and even out on her own and just, you just got to stick with it and you got to keep it going. Now I have grandkids and I, I want them to, to enjoy it as well. So that's, that is my current focus and the, current motivation i'll say right how has bow hunting changed do you think in the last uh 25 years from i don't know are are, are you the guy who has like used to have the subscriptions or maybe still has the subscriptions to the magazines the north american whitetail the deer and deer oh, hunting no. magazines did you do you have all that yeah. stuff and do you have social media now do you do the that kind of stuff yeah, it's, you mentioned probably the biggest change over the last 25 years, and you know I was a big fan of all the all the magazines, uh, Bowhunter. I even I even wrote a couple articles for Bowhunter and Bow and Arrow Hunting, and I I really enjoyed the print media. But uh, as time has progressed, in fact, my my neighbor Matt Brown that was down the road, he 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 kind of said, "Hey, dude, you got to listen to podcasts, man." Got, you got to get going on these podcasts and and he gave me you know your name and mark kenyon's name and some others and so i've been i've been listening and just recently my learning has accelerated you know due to you guys and your just constant feed of terrific information it allows me to learn from other people's experiences and strategies and 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 failures too and that's very important so yeah. that that has been the biggest change no doubt about it one thing that I noticed uh, when I was a kid and I had, you know, the deer and deer hunting magazine and the North American whitetail delivered to the door, I would, you know, check out some of these articles. And I feel like in the even in the last 10 to 15 years, the strategy approach to hunting whitetails has changed. Uh, do you feel that uh, um, the strategy that was being portrayed over the years has changed as a whole, maybe from like, hey, just sit field edges and wait for them to come out to be more aggressive. Or what's your what's your view on that? Yeah, I would agree with you there. The uh, in a couple of different categories. One just the I'll call it the more traditional approach to bow hunting, which twenty thirty years ago was everybody was just trying to walk in on a. Um, knocking on a door, walking in on a private piece of land and, and doing some hunting, setting up wherever they saw some sign of sorts, could be a field edge, whatever, to, to nowadays the understanding. And again, I attribute this mostly to the online media and podcasts and things. The, the understanding is so much better about buck behavior that people are, are changing their tactics, are learning quickly, and they're changing their tactics. And the new guys coming in have that advantage. They're able to to take advantage of that knowledge and insight. So I think people are better, better hunters today than, than they were, at least as far as getting a big buck on the ground. Gotcha. And the other side of it is I've noticed that there's a, a growth in the, the folks that own large parcels of land and manage them to a high degree. And it, it's, uh, you know, it's the opposite extreme and I, I still have a lot of respect for it. You know, if I contrast someone like a John Eberhardt, who is the ultimate, you know, public and highly pressured private land hunter and probably has never leased a bit of ground in his life, but just tremendous deer throughout his career. He's a, he's a terrific hunter. I contrast his and I respect his approach 
and then I contrast that with the, the big the big guys, the, the Don Higgins and Drews and, and those folks who who have this have mastered this. Um, it's not really. It's well, I guess it is. It's kind of farming your herd, but it's not high fence. It's just it's planting food plots and manipulating the ground and the water and the trails and things to a, a high degree so that they they are consistently dropping big deer, getting big deer, attracting them and dropping them, and it's and managing their herds and that that is an incredible thing to me as well. And you know, I'm, I'm I'm more on the John Eber hard side where I, I'm not that kind of a hunter, but I'm I'm in that category, so I I don't probably relate as well to the big guys but man they they get it done and it's impressive yeah and that's something that we don't really talk a lot about here is the two different styles of hunting right it's the go and get them versus the wait for them type hunting right where the drury's uh the lakoski's uh you know most of the big names within that tv realm they are hunting large pieces of highly managed property where they are manipulating the terrain they're planting the giant food plots they're hunting out of box blinds ground blinds tree stands right on top of those and they are waiting using trail cameras and a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of other data to wait for those big bucks to step out and they just keep them on the property with food all year round. And then there's the Eberharts, right? The public land guys who is going to the deer, looking for signs, scouting, uh, being as mobile as humanly possible throughout the timber to go and get the deer, go and find them and then kill them. And uh, you you laid that out perfectly. There's two different types of, of hunters and, you know, there may be a third type that's a gray area in there, but if you boil it all down, I really think it's that that two different styles of uh, go and get them versus wait for them. Yeah, and, and actually you said third type, and it, something popped into my head that I've been hearing some podcasts lately, and you probably had some of these guys on your show. The the guys that are hunting suburban areas like around Atlanta and yeah. places like that, that's an emerging category, I would say. Yeah, and that's a, that's a unique category as well because um, I still feel that these guys are the they're they're somewhat in the go and get them category because they have to move around so much based off of the small parcels that they're uh, that they hunt that they have to they have to be mobile as well in a way right they can still run the cell cams they can still run the uh, uh, you know they can have a a set tree stand in somebody one of these backyards that they're hunting and kind of wait for them to come through but what's cool is I mean there there are instances where these guys are even planting food plots in some of these uh, people's backyards as well so it's uh that that's definitely an interesting uh an interesting style of hunting as well yeah the sport the sport is evolving no doubt about yeah, it absolutely so i want to talk about you know i i most of the time we're talking to guys my own age which is and i don't know how old are you i'm 56 okay 56 i'm i'm almost 40 a lot of the demographic that listens to this uh to this podcast is in the you know the the late 20s early uh, late 20s to early 40s Uh, that's the biggest demographic for this show so i love having someone on who's older and has a lot more seasons under their belt um to to chat here and what is in the last 25 years what is something that you have really taken away from the timber about deer behavior 
Yeah, you know, I, I have to say it's uh, my current philosophy, and it has been for about the last 10 years as I've figured this out, it's it's a, a spin off the old uh, no Jesus, no peace, no Jesus, no peace thing. It's no does, no bucks, no does, no bucks. I, I focus on the does and, and not disturbing them and keeping them happy and knowing where they are, and then I'm sure – and over and over again, this has happened. I'm sure the bucks will show up in about the first to second week of November because I just don't see any on my property. Now, it's a smallish property, maybe 70 acres total that I hunt, and I got another parcel over near another town about 40 miles away that's about 15 acres, even smaller. They're both heavily pressured, so there's just the bucks just hide out. They just go somewhere else most of the year, but if if the does are undisturbed and happy where they are and comfortable, then the bucks will come after them in the first or second week in November, and I can literally count on that. And then it's just a matter of being uh, very uh, tactical about setups and wind and all the things that, that, that I've learned from you and the other podcasters on, on how to get the drop on them. But, but following and, and watching the does is the key. And if I were to zero in on one thing to focus on during the first and second week in November in regards to the does, it would be thick cover. They, they tend to go to the thick cover. I don't know if they're hiding from the bucks or trying to escape from them, but that's where they're going to go. They're, they're typically not going to be out in the open field edges and places they, they want to be in the cover. And that's where the bucks start coming, look, looking for them. And they'll be on those downwind sides, smelling for them, just almost just like clockwork. You can just count on it. And if you're if you're set up in the right spot, you're you're going to get an opportunity. You know, that's funny you mentioned that because something I observed this uh, this rut was the behavioral change of does during the rut. And you know, does are always kind of a skittish animal, regardless of of if you hunt pressure versus unpressured property, right? Uh, I hunt a couple pieces of property that I would say have very low pressure. And then I hunt a couple other uh, pieces of property that I would say are, are, are somewhat pressured, not necessarily from a hunting standpoint, but because there is other hunters out there, but from a, from an active farm type pressure where there's tractors and there's cattle and there's people working the farm, you know, there's combines and there's guys, uh, you know, running hay back and forth to horses and all this stuff. So it's a, it's a pretty active farm. And one thing that I've noticed is early season, the does, they kind of act the same. Uh, they are, you know, they, they're very curious animals and they, if, if you make a mistake, they will not leave until they find out what made that clink on the tree stand or you, your boot squeaked in the tree stand or, or maybe you coughed and, or, you know, you had to fight back a sneeze or something like that. They, they are, they want to find out what that is. Then when the rut comes from my experience, and I know it's different every farm, they tend to change their behavior to almost a hyper version of that, and they do not want to be seen. It's almost like the bucks are so intent on breeding, and the does are almost the opposite, and they don't even want to be seen, or they don't. It's almost like they don't even want to be bred. Have you seen anything similar to that over your years? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're, I, I see that as well. They change their behavior. They're much more 
skittish and and want to hide out absolutely and and they're much quicker to blow too if they oh, yeah. if they see something that's suspicious they're quicker to blow in fact it reminds me a couple of years ago i had a i climbed up into a stand and i made a little bit of noise and a, a doe heard me and blew and i'll be danged if not 30 seconds later a big 10 point comes comes oh, moving yeah. in he's not running away from the blow he's going towards it yeah he's trying to find that deer yeah yeah I, I, it's kind of funny this year uh in the same tree stand that i killed my buck out of this year i walked in one morning and uh these does i could hear them blowing uh down uh, it wasn't downwind to me it was i knew they didn't have my scent because they were up on the ridge and my scent was going down uh but they were blowing and then at sun up i tell you what here they come uh all these young bucks it's, it's not like it was almost like a, oh, there they are let's go get them you know it's like a, a, yep. a call for them to come and, and investigate um so that's uh that's a strange uh observation as well now yeah, an important lesson too because you think you're busted sometimes if if a doe blows you think you're busted i would say sit still be patient something might happen yeah especially if you're in a good terrain feature like a pinch point mm-hmm. right because uh does blow so often that i think i want i even wonder if deer bucks specifically get conditioned to ignore a doe blow if she's doing it all the time you know what i mean yeah yep crying wolf yeah exactly exactly all right so um strategy right and you touched on this just a little bit but 25 years in the last 25 years how has your strategy changed yeah mostly i i didn't have much of a strategy early on of course you, you i was learning and just trying to be in the right place and um, i kind of understood the wind but i i didn't really I wasn't able to use it, didn't have enough flexibility to really use it to my advantage consistently. So I would take too many chances with the wrong wind direction. And um, I I think that limited my opportunities. So I'd say that's the number one thing through the years is I've, I'm much better about wind. And, and lately I've been learning about the effect of wind on my access. That's something I hadn't considered. I'd walk in from any direction as long as that stand was good for that wind and now I pay a little more attention to the wind and its potential effect on deer as I'm moving to my stand. Yeah, access. That's um. Yep. That's that's crazy. I mean, I I tell you what, I feel that access is access to a tree stand location. Obviously, you don't want the wind blowing directly into a the the nose of a deer or where they're coming from, but I feel that access and this is a story that i've heard from you i hear from all the other guys who are successful year after year after year the access to and from their tree stand locations are solid they're locked tight and i think that's that might be in my opinion one of the uh the biggest challenges some hunters face when going in and out of the timber or a ground blind or wherever they hunt is access i agree yep and the terrain can be challenging but also uh, landlocked properties and borders and things can can limit your possible access routes so it's tricky yeah 
All right, so uh, I, I got to ask these these failure questions because in 25 years, I have a feeling that uh, you've blown it a couple times and you've failed a couple times. Uh, <laughs> what, uh, what are some of the biggest failures that you've learned from over the years and how have they kind of affected how you, uh, I guess, your strategy? Yeah, it's... So, so early on, when I first started hunting, I, I learned about, um, you know, kinetic energy and momentum and broadhead effectiveness and things like that. I was trying to, to learn those things. And, and I kind of in my late 30s, early 40s, I felt like I had those kinds of things figured out. And I was, I was shooting well. I, I didn't have many problems. And um, I bought a new bow one year. This, this is one of my biggest lessons, and it kind of plays into the story today I, I bought a, a new bow um, and I couldn't get it to tune very well with fixed blade broadheads I really struggled with it so I switched to a over-the-top mechanical uh, broadhead and first year I had great success with it and the second year I, I killed a nice buck uh, kind of early season and then I think I saw his twin brother that like a, a week later and I shot him and I didn't kill him, and I, I, I was, I was absolutely certain I shot him right in the boiler room. But he, I found my arrow, and he just wandered off. He ran a few, I don't know, twenty, thirty yards, stopped, looked around, and then wandered off. And I just thought, wow, what did I do wrong here? Found the arrow; it was covered in blood, but I found white hair, and it, it should have been a, a pass-through, double lung, out the other side. Shouldn't have been any white hair. Anyway, long story short, I, I tracked him for two days, never found him, and a buddy of mine shot him the following weekend during shotgun and field-dressed him, and he called me and said, hey, I found your deer. Um, you, you shot him, and that, that arrow hit right where you were aiming in the, in the boiler room, but something went wrong with the deployment of that blade, and it skated down the inside of the rib cage and straight out the bottom. And so needless to say, I switched back to fixed-blade broadheads for the following season, but I, that was a really hard lesson to learn because I felt like I did everything right, but I had a, a some kind of an equipment failure with that mechanical broadhead. And I've been back and forth on mechanicals and fixed blades ever since, searching for that mythical, perfect right. broadhead. But, but that was one of my tough lessons. And then later in life, as I got into my late 40s, I started experiencing, I don't know if I call it target panic or buck fever, but I was not consistently hitting well. I'd have a season where I was dead on a couple of bucks in 2015, for example, I had two heart shots and I was dead on. And then the next year, complete failure. I won a really nice buck, nice big 10 point. I completely blew the shot and, um, and never found him. So I, that, that has me doing things a little differently with preparation and practice and and uh, my shot sequence and focusing more on that and not, not, in, not allowing it to be an automatic thing, uh, forcing myself to think through the shot sequence and, and those kind of things. And I don't know if it's I'm getting older and just not as steady or if there was some, some mental aspect and just the re repetitive shooting and just not thinking. I don't know exactly what it was, but I've kind of gone back to the drawing board and started over on my shot sequence and that's helped. So I've been, been shooting pretty good the last few years with that approach. So those are the big ones I can think of. How long ago was that, uh, 
that mechanical malfunction? How long ago did that take place? Well, that was back at the turn of the century. So yeah, probably around 2000, 2001. Okay. And, um, just out of curiosity, were you, was it at a, like a quartering away or quartering towards? And it just I was it, dead it, broadside, dead broadside, about fifteen yards. And it just it when it when it hit the rib cage instead of going through, it went straight down. It did. So all I can figure is that two of the blades hit rib and one slipped through, and it and it just cocked the arrow and forced it to go down the inside of the rib cage instead of straight through oh man out the other side yeah and i didn't this was back before cell phones with cameras and things like that so i i didn't and the guy the guy told me about he didn't take any pictures but he described it pretty well that that and it was full of infection too so the deer probably wasn't going to make it um but he described it real well and it was exactly what i figured must have happened because otherwise it would have been a mortal wound yeah yeah that's nuts man i've been there too i've had uh I've had a a buck. Uh, I've told this story several times, but I had a, a, a over 200 incher broadside, 22 yards. Drew, I hit him a little high, but I didn't get much penetration. I think I got eight inches, eight to 11 inches of penetration. I can't really remember, but I thought to myself, I got one lung. There was good blood. I backed out, went and tracked him. No, nothing, nothing. He showed back up after the season on a big corn pile that I put out. And the next year, the neighbor shot him. And the neighbor uh, called me up and said, hey, man, uh, this buck that that I shot has a wound on him. I'm not sure how he didn't die, but uh, I I think that there's a potential that uh, I had a a broadhead malfunction as well. And uh, that was in 2010 uh, when that happened. So um, it was somewhere around there that I started really thinking. And of course, in the past, uh, since I've been starting uh, my big game out West to really focus on uh, fixed blade broadheads. And it's kind of funny. I said, I I was just like you. I was like, Oh man, I'm never going to shoot a mechanical again. And what did I do Uh, this year? I shot my buck with a mechanical, uh, so yeah i i had that question because did i miss a podcast because i don't remember you describing why you switched i remember you telling us that you had but i, I never heard the story or the backstory on why you decided to go with the was it the jackhammer the wasp jackhammer yeah the jackhammer and i'll tell you what i yeah. i bet you i've killed who i want to say 20 deer uh maybe between 15 to 20 deer with that specific broadhead the jackhammer Ah, and uh, yeah over the years um and then i think i was shooting an nap bitfire max or spitfire something like that back in 2010 when i had that problem with that uh uh, with that broadhead Uh, potentially not opening i don't don't want to diss the the spitfire but that's the one i was shooting no shit story i just told really that's crazy yeah um so I was talking to a guy who uh, who deals with these type of issues from a company. I'm not going to name the company, but he's told me that if a th- you know, let's just say a broadhead company makes a million broadheads, they make one million, they manufacture one million broadheads, right? What is one thousand of a million? I don't even know what that math is. What, is that one percent? Yeah, I'd have to do some calculating, but that's probably yeah. pretty close. So, a thousand so, PPM defect per million, a thousand is pretty high. 
yeah. So, um, but when you're, so you're, you're saying that a thousand, um, a thousand defects out of a million is uh, pretty high. Yeah, that's actually 0.1%. Yeah, in, in manufacturing world, that's considered a pretty high rate. So, like automotive guys, they're talking single-digit parts per million defects on their products. That's that's what they strive for. Okay, so I don't know what it is in the broadhead world, right? So if we take, uh, let's see, I got a calculator here. I think you just mentioned it. Yeah, so it's 0.1%. So if yeah. a thousand broadheads malfunction out in the field from a company that makes a million broadheads every year that is 0.1 percent defect rate and i have a yep. feeling that if a a broadhead company has has that kind of defect rate or you know and it, it's hard telling when you're actually shooting it at a deer this isn't in, in a facility where they're testing it right it's actually out in the field, so who knows if they actually opened or not. Uh, it's just the hunter's word against the manufacturers. And so sure. a thousand people could have experienced a, a broadhead not opening, and it wouldn't really cause any concern for a company that's making. That means that, you know, 999,000 broadheads worked as they were supposed to. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I think about that. So uh, I just would suck to be the one of the, those thousand guys who, you know, they had a, a product defect. Yeah, and the, what I experienced, I don't think was necessarily the product itself. Like, I don't think the broadhead necessarily failed. I think it was just the the uh, conspiring <laughs> the broadhead design conspiring yeah. with how it hit the animal angle to, and. To, yeah, that result. material yeah. and all that stuff. Right, right. So, um, so kind of, kind of going back, you know, to the gear side of things. I always like to talk about that. Where twenty five years ago, you know, when I see, I started hunting when I was like twelve, thirteen, uh, fourteen years old, somewhere around that age, and I can remember the first outfit that I had was a pair of farming overalls. And I was wearing rubber boots, like these uh, Walmart brand rubber boots with like two or three pair of cotton socks. And uh, <laughs> it w I just remember it was a blue overalls and I had a camo hat on. That was a, that actually a ski mask. You could pull it down over top of your face. And, and I was wearing a light camo jacket and a light camo pants that were way too big for me over top of that. And that was my hunting get up for, you know, the first handful of years. Now, you know, here I am rocking, you know, $200 jackets from Sitka or, you know, a, a pair of lacrosse boots that's over a hundred bucks. You know, I'm shooting, you know, uh, a bow that w sells for, you know, 900, you know, of between five to nine hundred dollars and all the, the equipment upgrades that go along with it. What what has your uh, takeaway on the gear side of things been in the last 25 years? You know, probably the biggest takeaway is I spend way too much money on my gear. <laughs> it's, it's cool stuff and it works and it's, it's effective. It's, you know, the clothing is much warmer and better than what I had. You know, I was in Carhartt bibs and an army surplus jacket when I first started 
bow hunting and yeah the, the the gear is great and but yeah wow i spend way too much money on it i'm not sure i i really need it all but i'm glad i have it yeah that's uh it's funny you say that because i get a lot of stuff for free because of the podcast uh, from partners and, and sponsors and people oh, yeah. people just sending me stuff to, to test out and i still sure. spend a shit ton of money throughout the year on uh hunting <laughs> gear and equipment so uh, i feel your pain there um so i, I kind of want to uh, do a, a real hard transition into uh, this year and talk a little bit about uh, well let me let me take a step back Illinois Illinois yeah. as a state was for a while in the 90s was the state I mean if you wanted to kill a big buck man you needed to go to Illinois and then soon after that Iowa follows Right. And then Iowa becomes the go to, you know, the cat's out of the bag on Iowa. Iowa used to be that sleeper state that no one thought had the big deer. Right. What have you seen as far as the state of Illinois? Um, and I'm just going to mention one county, Pike County. You know, back in the day, everybody wanted to hunt Pike County, Illinois, because it was sure. the it was the Mecca for big bucks. What have you seen in the state of Illinois back when you first started in your early thirties to today as a, uh, you know, as a seasoned bow hunter. Yeah. Now, so when I first started, uh, bow hunting, uh, like you say, Illinois was, was renowned. Now it was, <clears throat> we're, we're still renowned for this. The world record Pope and young deer was, was shot by Mel Johnson, uh, over by Peoria. Yep. And in fact, he was working at Caterpillar when I started, he was still working there. And uh, I never actually met him, but people would point him out to me. Hey, that's Mel Johnson over there. And at the time, I wasn't a bow hunter, so it didn't mean a lot to me. But you know, he was he was certainly highly regarded. He was a, he was a legend. So it was it was kind of neat to at least say I've I've seen Mel Johnson. Um, but his his uh, buck sort of I, I suppose drew a lot of attention to Illinois, uh, national renown, and Pike County started getting a reputation because it's, it's just perfect. It is the perfect, um, comp, I, I guess it's a, it's a composition of the terrain. The, it's got some ag, it's got a lot of water cause the Illinois river and the Mississippi come together at the end of Pike County there. So it, it's just got the perfect situation growing grounds for, for deer and for big bucks, but it started to get, um, I won't say commercialized, but a lot of um, outfitters moved in and the, all the private, the people used to be able to, to just knock on doors and go hunt soon became pretty high priced property for the, the few outfitters that could manage the, the money and the clients. So I think it's been heavily hunted. I think it's still terrific. I don't, but you don't hear as many stories coming out of there now and it, it could be because it's a little more commercial than it was before. Now, the rest of the state is still pretty good, and it's it's every, everything from where I'm at, which is mostly flat ag with a few rivers and drainage ditches and creeks and things where the timber grows and the deer hang out, to southern Illinois, which is more much more timber and hilly and a little different, uh, a little warmer climate too, a little different setup down there, but excellent deer hunting. To up north, which becomes more like the Wisconsin hills and trees that you're you're familiar with up in that area. Yeah. So it's overall pretty good. 
So um, you feel that Illinois was uh, talked about heavily, you know, in the, the late 90s, early 2000s. And do you feel that they've stopped being talked about because other states have caught up and more people who, who have kind of learned how to hunt have found more success, thus kind of, uh, I guess, quieting the one screaming voice that is Illinois compared to, you know, all these other people saying that they've been successful throughout the Midwest? Yeah, that's a great way to say it. I, I think people are just discovering that um, it's it's pretty good uh, anywhere in the Midwest and even into the West, west of the Mississippi, um, way over to the Rockies, that you can find whitetails are thriving and people are figuring it out. They're, they're getting smarter about how to hunt them. You know, a tactic that might not work in Illinois is terrific for Oklahoma, you know, things like that. So I, I think the, the styles are changing, it's evolving, and people are figuring it out, and the big bucks are there. Yeah, that's awesome. All right, so uh, now we can get into this season. I was just kind of curious uh, – watch because I'm, I'm definitely seeing something like that happen in Iowa I I lost a land I lost uh, a piece of uh, property a handful of years ago to a guy out of Missouri who he bought a big piece of the property and he turned it into an outfitting service and then uh, another guy locally turned his piece into an outfitting service in Iowa so they're running you know they're running out of staters out of it or even you know people in Iowa nothing against outfitters it's just that I, 10 years ago, I could walk to nearly any farm in Iowa, and if they didn't have a local bow hunter on it, I could get permission to hunt mm-hmm. it. That's yeah. changed yeah. over the last handful of years to where the farmers, A, know they can make money off of it and say, hey, why not? Why not lease it to somebody to get paid for it? Or why not uh, have an outfitter you know, run people off it? Or hell, I'll become an outfitter myself. You know, farming's not an easy gig. I'll just run hunters off yeah. of it. And uh, so I've definitely seen that change to where it is getting harder and harder, especially if you're a local, to find property to hunt, knock on door, with, given the fact that Iowa has hardly any public land to hunt. Do you? Does Illinois have a lot of public land? Uh, yeah, there's some. I, I don't know the numbers, but I, yeah. probably more than what Iowa has, because I think you guys are near the bottom of the list. Yeah. So we're, we're probably ahead of you. I, I doubt that we're at the top of the list. So. Mm-hmm. All right, 2019 season. What are these days? What are your goals going into a season? Yeah, my my goals haven't changed too much. I I certainly enjoy the the. The hope I'd say that there's a big buck out there that that I can harvest but since I I don't have a property that I can kind of watch and from year to year see similar bucks and it's always November surprise for me I, I'm just out there looking for where the does are going to be hanging out and hoping I'm going to get a opportunity on a, on a big buck so my 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 strategy is to get one in the freezer one that has antlers for helping with the decorating in the house and filling the freezer with meat. And after that, if I get that accomplished in, in the late October, early November, then I'll, I'll focus primarily on something extraordinary, something really big. And I rarely see that. So <laughs> it's usually just some nice time in the woods after that. But yeah, that's, that's my strategy year in and year out. So your, your goal is to kill a buck that uh, it meets your criteria. What are we talking? Four year old, 
or, or do you focus on antler size or age class? What's your, what's the, the details there? Yeah, you know, I, I would like to say that I'm, I'm really good at judging deer, at both age class and antler size, but I am terrible at it. So I, I, I have learned over the years to try and just focus on the body. And because and I can tell a, a young skinny deer from an older plumper deer, and, and that's what I use. And I've, um, of course, usually the antlers go along with the body size, typically. Uh, but I'm, I'm just terrible at judging deer on the hoof out in the wild. And, and I go by, my rule is uh, the first deer of the year is the first one that makes me go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, then the next deer, if I get a shot at another one, it's going to be a, a bigger one. It will be, oh, my God, deer. <laughs> so that, that would be my second deer of the year. Do you do uh, any doe harvesting? Do you ever go out to shoot a doe just for, for the meat? I have, uh, um, haven't needed to very often because I, I usually at least get one one deer in the freezer sometimes too plus my daughter hunts and between the two of us our, our freezer is usually pretty full but I have shot doe I, do, I don't feel the need to manage the doe herd uh, there's so much hunting pressure around um, that there's plenty of people in the vicinity that, that whack the does down keep that herd under control so I Typically, I'm completely focused on bucks, and that's the that's the chess match and the excitement for me is to chase those antler deer. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, you run trail cameras. Do you run trail cameras throughout uh, the entire year, or do you put them up during the summer to try to catch some velvet? When are you throwing your trail cameras up? Uh, it varies, but I usually have them up by Labor Day. Okay. I try and make sure they're up by Labor Day, and I have seen a couple of times that I've had cameras out earlier. Uh, I have seen this, uh, what they call the September drift or the September shift that, that occurs that they're, they're there in July and August. And then suddenly in September, they're gone. I've, I've had a bit of evidence of that, that, Hey, there are a few bucks that kind of hang around the vicinity or at least pass through occasionally. And then once September gets here, they are gone until November. Okay. All right. Uh, and was this year any different? Did you see anything on uh, your trail cameras leading up to the season that made you go, "Oh boy, here we go! This guy, this guy's a target." I wouldn't say that I saw anything huge uh, early on. Now, once November got here, or late October actually, then yep, yeah, started to to get some big antlers showing up on the on the trail cameras. No, nothing I think that I would consider a giant, but certainly in my wheelhouse. Okay. All right. So the, the season starts getting near, you got your trail cameras out. Um, when do you actually start getting into the timber to hunt? Uh, I guess the caliber of deer that you want. Yeah, I get serious about hitting my good stands uh, no no earlier than the last weekend in October. Okay. That, that's And I won't take any vacation days until late in the first week and into the second week of November. Okay. So with that said then, um, what do you remember what day was your first sit uh, in the timber this year? Oh, yeah, I do. I, in fact, this is the first year in 25 years I did not get into a stand in the month of October and just life happened and I just wasn't able to get out there so I I my first day was Saturday November 2nd Saturday and November 2nd too much a few does and fawns but no no excitement but it was beautiful and yeah. I enjoyed being out there for sure 
did you check your trail cameras at that point? Yeah, I, actually, I've I've got a mix of trail cameras. I've I've got some that I that I put out. And I just do not touch them because I don't want to uh, disturb the woods or disturb the does. I mentioned I, I like to have those does feeling very comfortable, so I try and stay out. And then I have some cutty links. Uh, my neighbor Matt Brown and I have got went together and bought a bunch of cutting link cameras and we've got the cell service with it. So all these cameras are daisy chained together and they take pictures and send them all daisy chain them all back to this main cell camera, which then uploads them to, uh, uh, to the internet basically. And we get emailed, uh, pictures from all these cameras. So we never have to touch them unless we need to change the batteries. And I think we've got that figured out because they are battery hogs. But that's a nice system because you can you can monitor your property very effectively without ever going in and pulling cards. Okay. And uh, did that work for you this year, or did it play a role in you making a move to a specific tree stand at all this year? You know, probably the most important thing it did for me was it, it helped me be patient in October when I couldn't uh, go yeah. to my stand because I wasn't seeing any bucks on the, on the Cuddy Link cameras to speak of so I, it made it a little easier for me not to be hunting uh, but but after that then I um, started seeing them and I would say yeah it did help a bit on where I thought I was going to see deer but ultimately they move around so much it's like a fish finder right you're 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 seeing pictures of these deer but it's not like you can go to that stand and expect to see that see that deer just like a fish finder you think there's fish down there but you can't get them to bite so the the value the immediate value is pretty low but it gives you an idea that there's something walking around out there that that uh, you might want to try and get the drop on and then you pick your stand based on these other things we've discussed the the wind and access and such things yeah that's a that's a important note there is everybody thinks that the cell cameras are going to help you cheat you know somehow and i mentioned this on the last podcast that i did uh, you know, cheat. It's like, I get a picture, I'm going to go in and kill him right now. Well, that could be the case, but at the same time, on the opposite end of the spectrum, it's allowing you to be patient, like you said. And it's like, well, man, I don't want to waste my time. I don't, you know, there's nothing moving on this farm right now. I'm not going to go in and blow it up just to wish, you know, or hope to shoot a buck because there's, you know, based off my trail cameras, and I know trail cameras don't tell you everything, but based off my trail cameras, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing the deer. Whoa. That's unprofessional. I forgot I had my, that on. But anyway, all right. So let's uh, let's get back into this season. November third was your first sit. Um, when did things start really getting serious for you? Well, so that that first day on Saturday, I didn't see much, and then I went out Sunday morning, and uh, it was again pretty quiet, pretty slow. I, I tried a little bit of light rattling, and um, about like few minutes after I got in, or I'm sorry, after the legal shooting light, I just did a little bit of light rattling and then nothing. And I waited a bit and I hit it again. Um, gosh, must've been close to eight o'clock and boom, had a buck show up. And it was the first buck of the year that made me go, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So I'm deciding I'm going to, I'm going to shoot this buck. And he, he comes in, he's looking around for the, the other two guys who were sparring and he just walks perfectly into a shooting lane and he stops and he looks the other way completely broadside about i don't know 14 15 yards and i'm able to get the draw get the shot and hit him square in the boiler room i thought it was a really good shot the only thing that was odd 
was that the arrow did not pass through, which is really unusual for me. Usually if I get them in the rib cage uh, broadside like that, it, it should be a complete pass-through, and it did not. But as he ran off and I could see the arrow sticking out, I thought, well, that's unfortunate that it didn't go in more than uh, six or eight inches, whatever, but at least it's in the right spot, and I could see the, the arrow clearly as he took off and thought, okay, I think I got him. In fact, I was so confident I <clears throat> texted my wife and daughter and buddies and said, hey, I think I got one. I'm going to climb down, go in, change, and come back and get him. And, and I don't usually do that unless I'm r really confident that the deer's on the ground. I've got some evidence of sorts. And uh, so I felt good about it probably because I could see where the arrow hit. Anyway, I <clears throat> changed, came back, looked for some blood at the impact site, didn't find any, started walking the trail. And, and I'm not worried at this point because um, it, sometimes when you don't get a pass through, it takes, geez, 20, 30 yards or more before the blood starts to come out the wound or out the nose. If you hit the lungs, which I should have hit the lungs, it takes a while before the, the, the nose will start blowing blood out. So <clears throat> I, I keep following it. I'm unfortunately not finding anything and, uh, kept going. I finally find the arrow maybe 40, 50 yards down the trail in a little opening area. And it's got a couple inches of blood on it. It's, it's two thirds of the arrow actually that it broke off and a couple, just a couple drops of blood that looked like that actually came off the arrow, not out of the deer. And now I'm starting to worry. Yeah. Um, something, something's not right with this picture. So I, I keep searching and it opened, the trail opens up into a big meadow, and now I'm not sure which direction he went, so I start doing arcs back and forth, back and forth. Can't find nothing. Now my heart is sinking because I'm like, this, this feeling is too familiar. And I'm in denial, of course. Right, you know, right. This, this can't be happening. That, that was a good shot. Zero uh, should be down. He's got to be here somewhere. He, he must be in this thick stuff, so I'm trudging through the automolas and stickers and burrs and I'm just covered head to toe and burrs I'm going through this thick stuff because everything still had leaves on it we had a, a really strange summer and fall and it just everything was still green and thick even in early November and <clears throat> so I can't see very good I just got to get down low and crawl through this stuff and I did this for hours I couldn't find him I'm calling my buddies saying hey what what should I do here my neighbor Matt he offered to let me pull his camera cards off some nearby cameras i pulled all my cards the cutty links didn't have him none of the cards the only picture i got of him was just before he came in before i shot him i found a picture of him but nothing after the shot he just seemed like he vanished so desperation is setting in and i called a young fellow over in a nearby town that's got a tracking dog with a pretty good reputation and he came over and and we searched and searched until after dark and dog never picked up on anything and uh, my wife was out there helping too. Uh, we we grid searched and just nothing, right? So I'm bummed out in a big way, um, upset because I wounded a deer. But also, usually there's a lesson, right? I've right. made a mistake of sorts. So there's something I can think about, and I, I'm just wondering what what can I fix here? What what went wrong? And and I'm bouncing this around all my buddies and trying to figure out what what possibly could have happened and they're 
they're coming back with, are you sure you hit him where you think you hit him? You know, that's the obvious question. After a while, that the bombardment of that question, I'm like, well, maybe I didn't. Maybe it was some kind of an optical delusion, and I just didn't actually shoot him right behind the shoulder. Maybe I hit the, the shoulder blade. It was too far forward or something of that nature. You know, that's that's all we could come up with. But as I talked it over and replay, of course, you replay this stuff over and over in your mind. And a couple of things started to emerge that were a little different than previous non-pass-through shots. And the first one that, that started to occur to me was that the sound was a little different. You know, you know that, that drum-like thwacking when you hit that rib cage and you know it's a good solid hit. It's a thudding, thwacking sound. It was actually a little more like a cracking sound, a little higher pitch, I would describe it. Yeah. And then secondly, when the deer ran off, the arrow, my previous experience with non-pastures, the arrow is sticking into the deer at the angle that it went into the deer. It's, it's, it's sticking out that same angle. And this was not. When he took off, that arrow was actually moving and dangling, which at the time I thought was good. Oh, it's cutting stuff up. You know, it's, it's doing more damage, so he'll, he'll be down quick. But, late, but as I thought about those two things and then after finding the arrow in a little bit of an open area which means that he didn't at least at that point he hadn't like run into a tree and broke it off it maybe it just was dangling and fell out so all that data the stuff that I kind of put together later was well maybe that arrow broke when it went into the deer when it hit the deer maybe it broke and deflected Uh, similar to the to, to what I experienced back at the turn of the century where the, the broadhead deflected and took the whole arrow south, maybe that occurred here. That, that was my best thinking, the best speculation and theory I could come up with. So I, uh, I decided, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm done looking for this deer. I, there's just no evidence here to, to grid search another day. So I decided not to burn any more vacation days. And instead, I, I just simply went, back to work and and I pouted and sulked at work during the day. And then in the evenings I started looking over my arrows and broadheads and, you know, looking for clues on what might've gone wrong. So I I just ended up speculating that, that the arrow broke and that that deer is still alive and I need to get a better arrow and broadhead matched up for any further hunting. So that's what I focused on that week. And my daughter took off, Thursday, November 7th, and she uh, almost got a shot on a terrific eight-pointer, and that got me excited. So I decided to take Friday off and hunt with her, and of course, we didn't see anything that day, um, but it, it was a beautiful day to be out and just a nice day, and then <clears throat> Saturday, we're out hunting again and uh, start seeing some bucks moving and nothing big but uh, looking pretty promising. And she ended up shooting a, a pretty nice eight-pointer that night. Not not the same one on, that she saw Thursday, but a, a decent deer. So we we're back at the house getting ready to go out and track it. And my Cuddy Link cameras send me a picture. And on that picture was the buck I shot on November 3rd, the morning of the 3rd. Oh, wow. And, he, and I, I can see the wound behind his shoulder right where I thought I had hit him. Are we talking like lung, automatic lung? Is When, when you looked yeah, at that double, wound, double what did lung, you see? Maybe the, maybe the back of the top of the heart. It would have 
it should have been a, a pretty quick kill. It was a pretty good angle. It was maybe a 30, 35 degree angle down, and it was just right behind the shoulder and maybe an inch or two higher than the middle. So it was it was right where I wanted it to go. Mm-hmm. Now he noticeably he was um, lighter. It looked like he had lost weight from the picture I had of him before I shot him. So I could tell he was hurting. Mm-hmm. And I felt bad about that, but certainly excited to see that he was still alive. So that that was a good day. My daughter got a deer, and I get a picture of the buck that I wounded. So all in all, that was a pretty good day. All right. So we need to fast forward a little bit then because that wasn't the last encounter you had of the buck that you originally shot. It was not, and this is where it gets really amazing. Uh, um, I, I go out, uh, let's see, the... I think it was the 10th. <clears throat> I get back out on the 10th, which forget which day that was, but I'm out there hunting and I am in a great stand with tremendous visibility. I can see for several hundred yards, it's heavy timber, but there's not a lot of undergrowth and there's hills and I can, I can see a long ways and there's, there's bucks chasing and <clears throat> about 150 yards away, a really nice eight point, And I decide I'm going to try and call him in with some doe bleed. So I hit the doe bleed a few times and I can't pull him off these does, but I call in the buck I wounded the previous weekend. Oh, wow. This guy shows up with a, in another little four corn comes in with him and I'm delighted to see him and I'm trying to get a shot, but I, I can't, he gets by me and I, I can't get a shot and he goes down and he runs off that other, uh, eight point that I was calling to and he picks out a certain doe. There must have been just one hot doe in the group, and he's on her tail. And he's limping a little bit, but he's going strong, and he's fending off other bucks and following this doe and seems like he's doing okay. So I thought, well, great. I saw him. Um, terrific. I hope I get to see him again, and I'll be danged if not 45 minutes later that doe brings him back past my stand. And, th- and this time I think I'm going to get a shot, and I, I get the full draw but he stops behind some thick stuff, not in the lane. I, I got no shot. And again, they move on. I'm like, Oh my goodness, this is incredible. And I'm telling you, uh, 30 minutes, not 30 minutes later, she brings him back by my stand. And I'm a full draw a second time. I still can't get a shot and they disappear again. She's just running him all over the place. It's incredible. And she lets him get kind of close and then she sprints off, you know how they do. Rip. And, and he, uh, so he's after, and I'm th- I'm like, wow, this has just been amazing. Um, surely I'm not going to get another opportunity. But again, about 30 more minutes later, here she comes. She brings him back, and this time she camps out in front of me. She's like 10 yards from me. and <laughs> Almost like, will you he, shoot this guy, please? <laughs> get him off yeah. my back. Yeah, literally, she's. it's almost as if she's trying to get me to peel him off. And, and uh, she's just just kind of grazing a little bit and he's hanging back in the thick stuff, not wanting to come out and he kind of moves down and um, he starts to walk and he's going to walk through a very small lane and I try and stop him with a bleat. Um, and he does stop, but he takes about one step too far and I, and I'm a full draw, but I, I don't have a shot just, just at his guts. And I didn't want to take that shot. And, but the doe, she heard me and she's looking up, like, what was that? And she starts to get nervous, stomping her foot, moving around. Finally, she settles down, looks away. I'm able to, to let off my bow. 
and she kind of wanders away. She gets, I guess, looking back at me, not, not spooked, but definitely feels like she shouldn't be there. And she takes him away for the last time that morning. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm, I'm excited, but still bummed out that I, I saw him, but didn't get to take a shot, but hopeful because I, I can see this guy is, is still moving around. He's doing what he can to, to hook up with those. I may get another chance. So I, I go out the next day, the, the 11th of November, which is typically a pretty good day in our part of the world. It's most bucks are, are harvested on the 11th as opposed to the other days during the month. So I got high hopes and <clears throat> I didn't see anything in the morning. I hunted till about one o'clock, climbed down and I went back out about two thirty, and, uh, right before dark, sure enough, another doe brings this guy in and they kind of came in from a direction. I wouldn't have expected a buck to come. I would have expected him to be, you know, downwind of the thick stuff, but the doe was, he was following her and she wasn't paying attention to that. And so when she came by, she got downwind of me and stopped. And then, uh, he stopped and he stopped kind of facing me and I was trying to get the shot and I was really tempted because it would have been a, it's a hard quartering toward shot. I would have had to try and snake it in the front and man, I just didn't want to do it. So I was just holding out that he would turn or do something. <laughs> and he finally did. And cause he got nervous watching her be nervous. He started backing up and he kind of arced his body turning back away from me. And I saw the rib cage and I took the shot and it was, uh, it sounded great. It was that hard thumping. Yep sound that you like to hear into the into the rib cage climbed down looked from arrow couldn't find it couldn't find any blood so i thought all right i'm gonna back out and i'm gonna look for him in the morning so i spent my second sleepless night thinking about the <laughs> same buck and uh, went out the next morning it was colder than blue blazes it was like six degrees so i started tracking him and he's uh I could see where he took off in the snow. And again, I can't find any blood. So I'm just, I'm just flabbergasted. Why did I shoot this buck twice now? I can't find any blood. And I couldn't find the arrow either. So I thought, well, maybe it's stuck. It didn't go through again. Maybe it was a non-pass through. Anyway, tracking him in the snow and I'm uh, just, oh, I could see where it goes because he took off and he was really digging hard. But then it opens up into a big area and there's dozens of tracks and I just start systematically walking these tracks that I could find in the snow for a couple hundred yards looking for clues and coming back starting over. And I kind of get to the end of the tracks that I can look for and I'm like, okay, looks, looks like it's time to grid search and uh, I'm going to have to go back in and get warmed up and, you know, call in the cavalry, get some folks out here to help me because I'm not finding nothing. And on my way back, I just take a shortcut, go down a hill, and I see a log, some logs down, and one of the logs does not have snow on it, which gives me pause because they should. They should have snow on them because it had snowed that morning. And I took a hard look, and, yep, there he is. He's oh, laying wow. on the side of a hill. And I just uh, walked over there and just laid down and looked up at the sky and started thanking God for everything just all the blessings in my life just the thankfulness was just overwhelming this had been such a roller coaster ride and and here this deer was laying there and uh i probably looked pretty silly 
laying there in the snow and the cold, but I, I just couldn't believe it. And I just was so thankful. That's awesome, man. Uh, but, uh, so what did you find out? What did you find out about, uh, the shot on this deer, the, the first shot, what happened there? Yeah, so it, it, it was time. It was time to to try and solve the mystery. And I'm laying there in the snow, and my uh, thoughts of my from my uh, high school football coach are creeping into my head. He had he had a lot of good advice for me. But one piece of advice he gave me on a lot of occasions, he would say, "Get up, you big sissy." So I did. <laughs> Is that advice? And, yeah, that's, that's good advice. It's good advice for life, right? Because you get knocked down and right. you got to get back up again. So. I did. I got up and started the started the work to open him up and carefully, very carefully field dress him to try and understand and find that broadhead and understand what happened. And indeed, I found it. It was uh, <clears throat> it wasn't where I expected. I thought it was going to be deflected low, like previous experience would indicate. But I actually found the broadhead and about six inches of arrow stuck in the opposite. So I shot him on the right side. The arrow broke, the broadhead deflected, went up and over the lungs and under the spine and stuck in the opposite rib cage, the left side rib cage. And the back end of the arrow was resting on the top of the lungs uh, right above the back of the heart. Holy smoke. So it's almost like it just out of pure luck and randomness just deflected up over top of the both lungs and hit and went deflected high you said deflected high it was pretty high on the rib cage i'd say just a couple inches uh, below the spine it just snaked right under it and i don't know how it missed anything important arteries or whatever but it it didn't in fact he was clean on the inside there was no infection the the entry the entry hole from the other side you could barely see it it had healed up and you could see on the outside it was scabbed over, but the inside you could barely tell that there was a wound there, and it wasn't stuck hard on the opposite side. It just the very end of the broadhead was just barely stuck in. It didn't take any force at all to to pull it out, pull it back out of there. So it was literally just resting on the top of his lungs. Wow, that's freaky. Yeah, they're, they're, that's freaky. They are tough. You all, tough yeah, animals. well, that and uh, that deer got lucky too, right? It got lucky that that happened. You should have had him dead on the first try, but just whatever i guess uh god had other plans the deer gods had other plans for him so you did some investigating you found out that that you know that randomness occurred um but your season wasn't over uh you know and and we're we're wrapping up here we've gone a little long but uh it's a interesting podcast by the way i just want to say uh i love talking with people uh who have done it a very long time like you i love the uh the commitment that you've put into finding this deer. And then it's almost like it's, it's almost like you, you, you got a picture of him knowing he was still alive. And I don't know, did you feel like you, like he was the only deer you wanted to, to shoot that uh, for the rest Absolutely. of the season? Absolutely. That, that question that, that you or Kenyon, they ask about, or I think it's Mark. He does ask it. Hey, if, if this deer you're after steps out or a giant booner steps out with him, which one are you going to shoot? I would have shot this deer. Hands down, no question, he was the one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you got him, right? Now, yep. uh, let's uh, fast now forward. Now I make a change. Yeah. 
yeah. So let's fast forward to, uh, I mean, you got, did you, were you able to take some of the meat off this deer? Yeah, yeah, we, we got all the meat because there was no infection. He was in great shape. So. Cool. So you got the meat off of him. Uh, you've checked that uh, that buck off. You know, you've checked the buck. You've got the meat in the freezer. Now it's time to hunt what you would consider, you know, your oh-my-God deer uh, for the year. Yep. Let's uh, fast forward to that day. Okay. So now I had made some changes, though, right? So I con- I confirmed that the arrow broke and the, air- and the broadhead deflected. So... Um, and also I had two instances of very weak to non-existent blood trails. So I, I changed back to a mechanical broadhead. I went uh, with a, I went to, with a rage tripan for the rest of the season. That's what I was going with. So I've now switched, um, mid season. Okay. So I'm hunting now the rest of the rut with this arrangement. And on the uh, 14th, I believe it was, I'm, out again on a great stand setup, one that you would be proud of. It's perfect, perfect wind downstream of a thick cover, good, good uh, scent cover behind me with cedars, nice setup. And I hear about uh, mid morning, I hear a grunt. And I try and call him in, nothing. Um, about noon, I hear it again, and I'm I'm planning on climbing down at one o'clock. So I thought I'm just going to throw everything at him. He's probably bedded down with a with a doe, but I'm just going to throw everything at him. So I'm, I'm bleating and snort wheezing and uh, growling and all, all, everything I can think of but over the course of the next 30 minutes. I'm doing this not all at once. And finally I get cold and I hang my bow up and I sit down and I wasn't 30 seconds and that rascal shows up broadside in the shooting lane to my right and I can't move because he, he'd be able to see me in his peripheral vision. So I let him walk, and I let him get about 60, 70 yards away, and I hit the bleed again, and I think he heard me. This is a pretty good buck, too. He's a, he's, he's a, oh, my goodness, this is a great one. And I go around and come out on this other lane, uh, other shooting lane, and, yeah, it takes him about 10 minutes, but he slowly makes his way behind me. He's trying to win me, but those, there's so many cedars, I think it, it helped cover my scent. And he does. He pops out on this other lane. He steps out, and I'm thinking he's at 30 yards. I had ranged it earlier, and I thought he was at 30, but he actually was well inside of that and at about 24 yards. So when I when I was able to get the shot, I hit him pretty high. And I thought, oh, this could be another long day. And uh, he, he spun and ran, and it wasn't a pass-through because it was pretty high and it was a mechanical, so the, the penetration wasn't great. But it was good. I could tell the arrow went in quite a ways, and it wasn't dangling. It was out straight out the right angle. Anyway, went, changed clothes. The neighbor, Matt, came out and helped me look, and we found him about 70, 80 yards from where I shot him. So I, I hit something important with that mechanical broadhead. Um, and needless to say, I, I'm a fan right now because <laughs> that, that was a short trail. Man, that's awesome. So uh, you laid down two, and I'm telling you right now, man, I'm a huge fan of eight-pointers, and uh, the second buck you shot is impressive. I really uh, – great mass, great mass on that deer. Yeah, and his neck was the most impressive part of him. He had just had this huge neck on him, and he was a brute. Yeah, big body, big body. So 2019 season, what, uh, what do you think of it? Wow, it was an incredible roller coaster, and I, I, you know, the way it started out, I thought it was going to be a, a another one of those that made me contemplate hanging it up again. But 
but it turned out to be one of my best seasons ever. So I'm, I'm just extremely thankful. You know, I, and, and you, I think it's funny how ahead. I think it's funny how uh, hunters think. You know, it's like you're just like, ah, well, I contemplated hanging it up there for a second. No, you didn't. You didn't think about that. I mean, you say it, but you, no real bow bow hunter ever is yeah. going to hang it up, right? We'll bitch, but we won't, we're not going to hang it up. <laughs> yeah, you're right about that. I'm so, bluffing, totally yeah. bluffing. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I tell you what, man, uh, I really appreciate you taking time to share these stories with us uh, today. Uh, thanks for uh, coming on, and uh, uh, you know, uh, good luck next year, and the year after that, and the year after that, and uh, maybe we'll do it again. Hey, thanks. It's been a pleasure. I'm really happy to have a chance to talk with you, and congrats to you on a, on a terrific buck this year, and also good luck to the Iowa Hawkeyes tonight. That's Iowa right. Bowl. That's right. That's a, that's a big one. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout-out to Dana for taking time out of his day, hopping on and sharing his insight as a bow hunter and uh, his passion about the outdoors and to bow hunting and hunting in general. Huge shout-out to all of you for taking time out of your day to download, listen, subscribe, all that stuff. Be sure you guys are following along on social as well. And uh, please share this with your friends because I think if you can really listen to these stories and absorb these stories, you will learn something and uh, you'll be able to take that into the woods with you the next time that you go out. So uh, take that and put it in your pocket. (laughs) Other than that, thank you very much for listening. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast, Prime Archery, Ozonic, Sentinel Nation, Wasp, Broadheads, Ripcord, ARS, Lone Wolf Tree Stands, and of course, Vortex Optics. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast podcast not only because those brands are badass as hell but uh they are on they're they're primo brands right they they're not going to let you down and they have high 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 customer service and i think that is what makes a company great so other than that hunting season is winding down for a majority of the u.s i know it's still december but uh in iowa man we got just like a week or two before it's all said and done and then we're back back to daydreaming and wishing mode but i tell you what i'm daydreaming about right now and that is shed hunting you don't need a you don't need a safety harness to shed hunt but if you are going to be in a tree please wear your damn safety harness Have a good week.